This morning's gospel reading comes from John 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The word of the Lord. All right, we're continuing along in John's gospel this morning. Um, last week, we, we saw Jesus with some of these same folks, with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who when we first encountered him was, was dead and in a tomb, and now they're at a dinner party. And right after Mary anoints Jesus, there is a passage that I took out. It's the triumphal entry. And so if you notice that, or if you're reading along in your Bible, I pulled that out for a reason. We're going to go back and look at that passage on Palm Sunday of next year. So you're just going to have to wait. Sorry. Uh, let, me, let me pray as we, as we think about this together. Father, would you help us this morning? Um, would you help us to see our own need? And would you help us to see how you meet our needs in ways that we could never fathom and never imagine? so that we might walk um, out of here this morning feeling so full of your presence and your love that we could honestly say that, that you are my portion forever and what else do I need? Father, help us to trust. Help us to believe. Would your spirit give that to us this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Some of you um, might be familiar with the, with the writer and the author Henry Nouwen. Um, I've used him probably as an illustration before. He wrote, if you're familiar with him, you've probably read one of his books. He wrote about 40 books in his lifetime, and he was a, a, really a Catholic priest and academic. So he taught at, for 20, over 20 years at, at Notre Dame and, and Harvard and Yale, and I think that by all accounts, if you looked at his life, you would say that this man succeeded. Um, he, as far as what he was setting out to do, he was highly sought after speaker. His books, um, really for somebody who taught at such academic places, really reached a popular level. He was very, um, just very well loved, really across the board as well, as far as Christians go. And he did something towards the end of his life that really caught a lot of people off guard, and they they didn't know what to make of it, and even some of his friends strongly advised him against it. But he got to this point where he had achieved all of these things and really probably achieved everything that he set out to do, and he found that there was still just something that was lacking. And really through his friendship um, with another man named Jean Vanier, who owns, who started um, centers for those who have mental disabilities all across the world, um, recommended, why don't you go and live in one of my centers for those who have mental disabilities? And he did. And he really spent much of the rest of his life taking care of just a, a few people who really weren't able to take care of themselves. And he said this about that experience. He said, the first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was that their liking or disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with any of the many useful things I had done until then. Since nobody could read my books, they could not impress anyone. And since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale did not provide a significant introduction. Not being able to use any of the skills that had proved so practical in the past was a real source of anxiety. I was suddenly faced with my naked self, open for affirmations and rejections, hugs and punches, smiles and tears, all dependent simply on how I was perceived at the moment. This experience was, and in many ways is still, the most important experience of my life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that can do things, show things, prove things, build things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love regardless of any accomplishments. This experience was and is, in many ways, is is the most important experience of my life. Why? Because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. And what he's saying, obviously, is that he thought, up until that point in his life, that who he was was what he had produced and what other people had said about him. And I want to ask you this morning, as we begin to think about this passage, I want to ask you just a a simple question. Where is your identity? Where is your identity? 
Maybe another way to come at that question is, how do you justify your, ex- your existence? Maybe to ask it another way is that when people, when, when you first meet people, what do you want them to know about you? It's always interesting when you first meet somebody or if you're at a party um, and you start talking to somebody to kind of hear what comes out of your mouth, um, you're really expressing to them what you want them to know about who you are. What do you want people to know about who you are? What do you, what do you tell them? When, when people see you, what do you hope that they see? If we're honest, I think most of the time we want people to see something I've done, something I've accomplished. Um, I want people to see that I'm in some way competent, that I haven't utterly failed in life. We want them to see maybe our intelligence. And so maybe we spout that out in various ways. Or we want them to see maybe it's our humor. Some of us lead um, with our style. Literally, the things that we put on our bodies um, say something about how we're seen. And we say, I want to be seen in this way. I want my identity to be rooted in this way. And here's the thing that you already know and I know is if the world, if it's the world that defines me, if it's the world that gives me my identity, if it's the world, if it's what you think about me or I think about you that defines whether I'm worthy or not, then what we already know is that our lives are going to be marked by a lot of anxiety. And our lives are going to be marked by a lot of questioning. And, and many times what we, if, we're, if, we, if we stand back and look at ourselves, we kind of look like maybe we're on this anxious PR campaign to show everyone else around us, you should love me. I really am worthy. I really am good. I really am smart. I really am intelligent. I really am accomplished. I've really done all of these things. Can't you see it? In this passage this morning, I think this passage is about a whole lot of things, but we're going to focus in on one. This passage tells us about the freedom that comes from having our identity rooted in Jesus. The freedom that comes from knowing what Jesus says about me and what Jesus thinks about me, I already know, I already understand, it's secured for all of eternity, and that's really the only thing I need to know about myself. And then knowing that, following after him. So let let me just point to a couple things this morning. Um, We're going to talk about following Jesus, according to Jesus, and then we're going to look at a portrait of of what that looks like, a portrait of a follower of Jesus. And so following Jesus, according to Jesus, I want to start at the end of this section. So this would be verses 20 through 26, and then we're going to circle back around, and we're going to look at this encounter at at the dinner party. But as Jesus's ministry has begun to advance and and he's beginning to draw more crowds, more and more people are curious about him, so much so that in this section, what we see is that even some Greeks are coming to Jesus. And they they come up to Philip, I think, with this really fascinating question. They say, sir, or really statement, sir, we want to see Jesus. 
Bring us to him. We want to see him. And so Philip goes and tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go together, and they go to tell Jesus. And this sounds like maybe good news, right? Maybe Jesus would have said, ah, more followers. Exactly what I wanted. My fame has reached even to the Greeks, and they've come to seek me out. But Jesus instead, I mean, if you go back and read this, I know sometimes when people are reading to you and you're in church, you're thinking about something else. I understand. But if you go back and read this, it doesn't make sense at first. That they say, hey, these, these people, these Greeks even, they want to come and, and see you. They want to come and meet you. Um, they've heard about you. They've heard about what you're doing. And Jesus responds in a way that you think at first, did they hear what he actually said? Because his response, he begins to talk about grains of wheat falling into the ground and dying so that they may bloom. And then he says this, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. They're asking to see. I think that's an important word. They want to see Jesus. And Jesus is saying, if you have eyes to see me, then what you'll understand is coming after me And following me is actually going to cost you something. It's actually going to be incredibly costly. And he, in fact, he puts it in the most intense words that you can think of. He says it's actually going to mean hating the things you thought were actually life. Hating the things that you thought were actually life. Because to really see Jesus is to see that he himself is life. He is life. And he owes me nothing, but he instead he offers me everything. And so I think we have to start, if you think about these words, and these are pretty intense words that Jesus gives to us this morning, we have to start with ourselves. Um, Because to some degree, you being here this morning means that you are associating yourself with Jesus. To some degree, whether you're asking questions about him, you're curious about him, you're coming to say, I want to see him, or you're somebody who's saying, I follow him. But there are all sorts of people that were following Jesus in his day, and they were following him for the wrong reasons. And I think Jesus is usually, I mean, Jesus is very concerned about this. You read through the Gospels, Jesus makes no bones about the fact that this disturbs him. And in fact, Jesus says things to the followers that we kind of in the modern evangelical American church would be terrified to say to followers because people might leave. Jesus says it all the time. And what Jesus knew is that he was not their identity, but what they were looking for was somebody who had something that might contribute to their identity. And sometimes he knows, Jesus knows, that we might want to use him as long as he's convenient for us. And so there's something that Jesus might get us. And so some people might be in church or might join in to some degree to following along with Christianity or following along with Jesus 
And you might find that this is the way that we grew up. And so we continue to do it. And maybe there's even something about it that just feels right. You know, it may be the fact that you're like, well, if I don't go to Sunday, if I don't go to church on Sunday, I feel, I feel bad. It feels good to go. It feels somehow like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is what I was taught to do. And so I continue to do it. And others might follow along for a while because what we think is that if God is really God and he really is sovereign and he, he really is good, maybe he has something that he can give me. And maybe it works like this. Maybe if I follow him for a while in some ways, maybe if I clean up some parts of my life, then he'll give me the things that I really want, that he'll give me some of the life that I actually want. And it becomes this sort of back and forth with God, I'll obey you if you give me this. And others of us just feel guilty, right? I mean, we feel guilty. We understand, we see our lives, we look at ourselves, and we know that in many ways our lives are a mess, and we want to be a person of worth, so we think that following Jesus means trying really hard, and if I try really hard, I'll maybe grab his attention, and he'll notice me, and then I'll, you know, I'll be worthy then because of what I've done religiously. And so we try to use following Jesus sometimes to, follow, I mean, to, to, to cover up the fact that we feel guilty. And then, again, I mean, if we do that, what we find is that it's not really about Jesus. It's really just still about us. It's still about us proving our worth. And I think many folks follow along for a while because of their kids. You get to a certain point and you're like, my kids, need to, they need to go to church. And so maybe they need, uh, they need a church setting. They need some sort of religion in their life. And if they have that, maybe it'll help them along the way. And maybe their life will be a little nicer. And it won't be as hard. And maybe they won't run with the wrong crowd. Your kids need to see that you are so desperate. And you are so sick that Jesus had to come and find you and die for you. That's what they need. And so we don't do this, we don't follow simply for somebody else. And what Jesus is saying is that if you follow me really for any of these other reasons, and he's really plain about it, and this is why I'm trying to be really plain about it this morning, because I want to be faithful to what Jesus is actually saying. If you follow him for any of these reasons, eventually you will burn out and you will get frustrated because God won't necessarily make your life go the way that you want. And when that happens... We throw up our hands and say, why am I doing this in the first place? I mean, I'm doing this, and he now is in my debt. He now owes me because of my faithfulness, and yet he's not doing it. And what Jesus is trying to get these people to think about is that there's ways of following him that are actually not following him at all. They're an attempt in one way or another to secure the identity that we actually want, the identity that we think that we deserve. And so Jesus goes straight for the juggler vein in this passage. Hey, there's people, Jesus, that want to come see you. And Jesus says, following me is going to cost you something in this life, not in the sense that if you pay enough, if you serve enough, then you can be my follower 
but if you actually find me to be the source of all life and the source of all joy and the source of all forgiveness, then what it means, it's, it's going to cost you the things that you thought were actually life. And what he's saying is that the death of those things is going to be painful for us, and it actually looks like taking up a cross. But what he wants us to see is that what you gain pales in comparison to the things that you loved. He says you have to hate your life. Those are strong words. And when we really see ourselves as we are and we see our guilt and we see our shame and we see our need, you know when you get to that point, when you get to the point when you're like, there is nothing else that I can do. I'm at the end of my rope. That's a good place to be, by the way. And we see that it is right there. It is right then that I begin to understand that Jesus actually loves me. That he sees everything, that he sees everything about me. And Jesus took all of my guilt and all of my shame and he marched straight to the cross and Jesus died for me. When we begin to see that, we begin to see that he is actually everything. That he's all the safety, he's all the security that I will ever need in this life. And what he's saying in this passage is that to embrace him necessitates the release of our grip of other things. It necessitates the release of our grip on other things. What what does that mean? That means that when we find Jesus, if we actually see him, he says, you want to see me? If you really see me, what I'm saying is that I want to give you life. And that means that you find all of your life hidden in me. And so I am everything to you. And what that might mean is that might cost us some things. What might it cost us? It might cost us some relationships in our life. It might mean that, you know, I'm dating this person that I know that I shouldn't be dating. But they're giving something that I think I need. Or it might mean, you know, um, it's going to cost, you know, it might mean just simply that people were going to think you're weird. It might mean that it's going to cost you money. Not in the sense that Jesus is asking for your money. But in the sense that when you actually, when Jesus actually finds you, you'll find that you're so compelled to not hoard your money but to give it away that it shocks you. All the vain things that I used to trust in that charmed me the most They don't matter like they used to. And if we're never compelled in that direction, then we have to ask ourselves the question, where is our treasure? Where is our identity? You see, following Jesus is is a path of downward mobility. Now, everything around, this is what makes, I think, being a Christian and our age very difficult because What I'm telling you this morning is that being a believer and following Jesus and finding all of your worth and your identity in him is the place of greatest joy. It is the place of greatest peace. It's the place of greatest comfort. But you walk out this door and what you're confronted with with the rest of the week is that the good life is a life of upward mobility. 
The good life is a life of me securing my worth, of looking out for number one, of defending myself, of gaining more, of accumulating more, of looking more prestigious, of looking more accomplished. That is the life that is actually going to bring me peace and joy and comfort. But the life that Jesus is describing is the life of the cross. That he's saying that actually all of the Christian life from this point forward... Um, You have me, and that's all you have. And that means that the rest of your life is a life that's in the shape of a cross. It's cruciform. It's continually dying to myself so that I might live to others. It's continually giving what I have so that others might flourish. It's an outpouring of ourselves because we understand that Jesus has outpoured himself for me. And what we find is that that is actually and precisely the place where what we were looking for before is found. And it makes no sense to the world. That that's the place of lasting joy. That that's the place of true joy. You remember back in in John chapter 6? Of course you do. uh, John chapter 6. When these people, these followers, again, they're coming to Jesus. He had just fed 5,000 people. It was a pretty momentous occasion. They come looking for him the next day. And they're asking him questions to kind of test to see, is this really the Messiah? And Jesus says things to them like, hey, you know what? You're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And what Jesus was saying in that moment is that if you're going to come after me, what I want to give you, I want to give you something that is so good. But I'm going to be your entire sustenance. It's it. And what he's saying particularly to those people who trusted so much in their religious and moral ability that he's saying, you're even going to have to let go of that. That I didn't just, I'm not going to die just for how bad you've been. I'm actually dying for even how good you are. And they got mad and they got frustrated and they walked away. And so many people left Jesus to the point where he turns to his disciples and he says to them, are you going to leave too? And, of course, Peter, who's always the first to speak, Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he says, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus turns to him, and what he basically says is, you haven't given up anything. You gained everything. You gained everything. And that doesn't make sense at first. It may not have even made sense to Peter at the time. But if you go back and you look at what Peter wrote later in his life, Peter absolutely understood that as he writes to encourage new young Christians who are facing a life that's going to be hard and that's going to involve a lot of suffering. He says that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance that it's imperishable and undefiled and unfading and reserved for you in heaven. He says, you already have everything. You have everything in Jesus. And that's just it. Following Jesus is not some sort of dreary, moralistic servitude. The person who finds it actually finds everything. Following Jesus is not some sort of Um, I'll do this for you so that you'll give me something. It's actually the path to joy. It's actually the path to what we're looking for. Jesus tells a parable about a man who finds a treasure in a field. And he says, in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has. And he goes and buys that field. 
Because the treasure makes everything else seem ridiculous in comparison. Let me ask you this. Is there honestly anything that you can think of that at the very end of your life, when you know that it's coming, maybe you will know that it's coming, maybe at the very end of your life, when you're about to breathe your last breath, that you'll be so glad you, re- you rooted your identity in that other than Jesus. It starts to sound stupid at that point, right? The things that I brag about, the things that I boast about, the things that I want you to see when you see me, they all feel a little bit flimsy when we look at it that way. And if you can think about anything else that you would rather root your identity in, then you might not see Jesus. We certainly don't see him the way that Mary sees him in this passage. So let me end by looking at that. That Mary is, a, is really a portrait of a follower. And really a portrait, I think, of what a follower should look like. Mary's not very complex. We don't know really if Mary is very educated. Most likely she is not. She is in love. In the purest sense of the word, she is in love with Jesus. That she sees Jesus. She sees that in Jesus She has actually received everything. She sees that he owes her nothing, and yet he has given her everything. And because of that, he deserves everything. Were the whole realm, we sang, of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what this is a picture of. It's a picture of a woman who is so moved by her own unworthiness and yet has been found worthy that she says, there's nothing else in the world that I need to run after anymore. I've found it, and it's right here in front of me. And because of that, at this party, she does this display that is both extravagant and it's humiliating. She takes very expensive perfume. 300 denarii is about a a year's worth of wages. Have you ever had somebody that you wanted, you thought, I really love them, I'm going to buy them something. I want to spend like $50,000, right? I want to spend whatever. I want to spend a year's worth of wages on them. And she takes that and she anoints his feet and then she washes and wipes his feet with her hair And you know that in this culture, feet are dirty, feet are nasty, and nobody washes feet except for the people who are the lowest of the low. It's just the the picture of it is, is kneeling, is bowing down, is getting on the ground and taking someone's feet and anointing them. And then she lets down her hair, which probably got a few gasps, right? Because you didn't do that in this culture. A woman didn't let down her hair in front of this group of men. And she lets down her hair. Why does she let down her hair? Because she wants to rub and wash his feet with her hair. I mean, we've heard it before, and it might just kind of go over our heads. But just, I mean, if you can picture that in your mind. This is someone who is proclaiming in the strongest terms possible, you are everything to me. I don't care what anyone else thinks about me 
Because I know what you think about me, and I am so overwhelmed by what you think about me that I'm moved to this act that humbles her and yet exalts him. I want to say, I mean, I think if we want to know, we're obsessed with freedom. If you want to know what freedom looks like, that's what freedom looks like. That is exactly what freedom looks like. Most of us spend our lives maybe frustrated that Jesus is not giving us deep down what we think he owes us. And you see from Mary that until we actually drop the thought that I deserve a better life, and we see that what he has given me in comparison to what I actually deserve is utterly utterly amazing, then I will never actually follow him. That what he gives me and offers me in comparison, you see how it takes humility because Mary knew that she did not deserve the love of Jesus. And yet he had lavished it upon her. And she says, that's it. It's only when we see he owes us nothing that we can start to grasp that he actually has given us everything. And then we look at Judas, and Judas is watching, and he's a contrast, obviously, to Mary, because he's thinking, what a waste. I mean, what a waste. He's watching this scene unfold, and he's thinking, you know, that's a lot of money that she just poured on this dude's feet. And we might look at that and go, that's pretty practical. I mean, if you're pouring out a year's worth of wages onto somebody's feet, Um, it might cause you to pause and to think about why in the world is she doing that? And of course, John fills us in. He says Judas is a thief. He doesn't care about the poor. She's pouring out his God. She's pouring out his identity. She's pouring out the very thing that he was going to take in order to uphold his life and uphold his stature and uphold his identity. And so, of course, he's mad because she's pouring out his God. That's what he really worships. And it's so fascinating that Mary is the example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Mary is the example of that because Mary is a nobody. She's not important in her society. She's not important in her culture. She is one of the weak and foolish things of this world that God uses to shame the strong. Out of all the religious people in the Gospels, out of all the important people in the Gospels, it is amazing Jesus looks at her and says what she is doing is right. There is no gift that is too extravagant for me. Isn't that amazing? Following him... Having our identity rooted in him, it's not about being good enough. It's not about being smart enough. It's not about being moral enough. It's not about being religious enough. It's about being humble enough to see how weak, frail, and desperate we actually are. And then to stand back in awe that just as I am, exactly as he sees me, he actually loves me to the point of coming to find me and to the point of adopting me into his family. There's a famous story um, by maybe one of the most important thinkers of the last century, Karl Barth. And I don't know if it's true or not. It's one of those stories that gets told a lot. But I love it, and I think it's a great way to end. Because Barth, who was German, he was touring America at one point. And lots of people were coming to see him, and students had questions for him. He was a brilliant theologian. And one student at one point said, 
can you summarize, this is kind of an unfair question, but he says, can you summarize your life's work, your life's theological work, in just a sentence or two? And he said, of course. I could summarize it the way in a, through a song that my mom taught me when I, was, when I was really young. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Let me pray. Father, it is um, the hardest thing for us to believe that, that Jesus actually loves us. And Father, what that does to us, and, and many of us can attest to this in this room, is that it sends us on a wild goose chase in our life to find something to make ourselves worthy when what is sitting right in front of us and what is offered to us is life and acceptance and forgiveness and worthiness beyond what we could ever imagine. So, Father, I pray for those here this morning who may not know you. And I pray that what they hear um, is good news. I pray for those of us who do know you and have seen you. But what we've found in our lives is that there's a lot of other things that we really secure our identity in and base our identity in. Father, I pray that you would help us to know what it looks like to release our grip of those things so that we might find the joy that we're really after is already in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.